Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. After a bit of a break, we are continuing again in our study in the book of Acts. We are presently in part four of what will ultimately be a 12-part series. And if you do have the outline notes, and I would strongly recommend you downloading those if you don't, uh, all of the notes and previous recordings are available in several different ways. You can go to our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and download both the um, PDF files for the notes and also the audio recordings. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your smartphone, and you will automatically get any updates and things that are added there. In any event, uh, we are now finishing up part four tonight, and if you are following along in the notes, we're on page 64 of the outline. And let me just do a quick review and sort of bring us up to where we are. In part four, we are looking at chapters three, four, and five in the book of Acts, and we've entitled this whole section, The Growth of the Jerusalem Church. We are still not going to be finished with the Jerusalem Church just yet, even in the next part. Uh, it's, it's important, I think, to keep reminding ourselves that we're still just in Jerusalem, even though in Acts 1.8, the direction that was given was for Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. We haven't gone to Judea or Samaria yet, nor have we gone to the uttermost parts of the earth. And these first chapters in the book of Acts, at least up to chapter 7, cover about 10, possibly uh, 15 years of church history. So it was quite a long time before the gospel really moved outside of Jerusalem and its environs, certainly uh, until the gospel went out into the Gentile world. So, in Acts 3, 4, and 5, uh, a number of significant things have happened. Um, a number of miracles have now taken place in Jerusalem, and along with miracles, there has come uh, repeated persecution. The apostles have been arrested several times, and rather than being intimidated or threatened by all of that, they prayed for more boldness, they prayed for more miracles, and God answered their prayer. And we see them with greater and greater boldness each time they are persecuted, threatened, arrested, or confronted, they come right back and say, we must obey God rather than men. Now, they weren't being rebellious. They weren't being lawless. They were stating a very important fact that you and I need to learn. We must always obey the highest authority. God has established different levels of authority, and He is the highest authority. So whenever any other authority, be it uh, a magistrate, a civil authority, some sort of a religious or uh, spiritual authority, could even be an authority in the home, the husband, the father, the parents, uh, could be an employer in a workplace. Whatever authority is in place, it's been established by God. And we are to obey those authorities only and when they are in agreement with the ultimate authority, which is God. 
If there's any conflict, we must always appeal to the higher authority. Thus, if the government is telling us to disobey God, like the apostles, we must humbly but firmly and boldly assert, sorry, but we must obey God rather than men. And there's an order that God has established in every level of society, particularly in the family. The husband is the head of the wife, the parents are over the children, but the scriptures even there are very clearly, we are to obey them in the Lord. So if a husband is telling his wife to do something that is contrary to Scripture, she is not under authority to obey that command, which would then cause her to be in direct opposition to God's Word. Likewise, even children should not obey their parents if the parents are telling them to break God's law. And this is not advocating rebellion, quite the contrary. It is advocating obedience to the highest and the ultimate authority. So, when the apostles were threatened to stop teaching and preaching in Jesus' name, they had to humbly reply, we must obey God rather than men. And therefore, they continued to preach Christ, they continued to teach the Christian doctrine, despite the numerous threats and persecutions that were coming their way. And in Acts 5, we saw uh, the situation that arose with Ananias and Sapphira, the enemy will try to attack the church both from without and from within. The attacks were not only coming from the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders who were imprisoning the apostles and threatening them. They had problems from within. And we saw in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, this was a direct attack from Satan. Satan had caused them to lie, not only to Peter, but to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to lie to God. And, of course, fierce and severe judgment came upon Ananias and Sapphira. They fell down dead in the church, and were carried out and buried immediately. A very severe judgment indeed. And the results we noted very carefully, it brought great fear upon everyone. And that's what it was designed to do. When we start to play games with God and play church and think we can pull the wool over God's eyes, God will step in and establish His fear again. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And the scriptures emphasize this often. We must tremble before God. We must tremble at His Word. And, you know, we can begin to take things for granted, and we, we can become sort of inoculated even against the Word of God and against the Holy Spirit, where they no longer have the same impact on our hearts and consciences and lives. And one of the good things that happens during this season of fasting and prayer that we are in is your conscience becomes more sensitive. And hopefully the fear of God is revived in your life, and you realize the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil, and His ears are open. He hears everything that we say, not just audibly with our lips. He hears our thoughts. He hears what we're muttering and murmuring and often complaining 
even in our heart. It might not be coming out of our mouth, but God hears all these things. And as we are coming before the Lord for cleansing, for healing, for sanctification, uh, He will make us more sensitive to those things that He wants to deal with. And the fear of God is very, very good. It says in Acts 5.11, Great fear seized the whole church after the events surrounding Ananias and Sapphira, their lies, their hypocrisy, etc. And we can only imagine and speculate what might have happened in the church if that had not taken place. Others might have been emboldened to do the same things that Ananias and Sapphira were doing, to lie and try to cover up sin and think that they could also uh, maybe fool Peter and pull the wool over his eyes. Well, we can fool a lot of people a lot of times. We can even fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. And that's the thing that we want to be reminded of during this time of fasting and prayer. Our lives are an open book before God, and He's the one with whom we have to deal. And therefore, we need to repent, we need to confess our sins, we need to clear our consciences before God. And the fear of the Lord is very, very useful in doing that. The fear of the Lord will cause us to depart from evil, the Bible says. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And sadly, many Christians today, they've lost that fear and trembling aspect of salvation. They're very flippant, very casual about their Christianity. And they kind of pick and choose what they want to do, when they want to do it. They obey what they feel like, and they do their own thing. Let me tell you something. When the fear of God comes upon you, you will tremble. You will tremble at God's Word. Every word from Genesis to Revelation. And when the Lord speaks something to you, it causes you to shake inside, and it's like, Oh my God, this is serious business. God is serious. I need to get serious. So, the church came into a fresh season of revival after what took place with Ananias and Sapphira. And that's our hope. As we draw near to God, as we cleanse our hearts, our minds, our consciences, as the fear of God is revived in our lives, God will begin to move in a fresh and a new and a powerful way. After all that happened with Ananias and Sapphira, we read in Acts 5.12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and it goes on to say that people were laid out in the streets, the sick, even to be healed by the passing of Peter's shadow. Wow! Huge crowds gathered around Jerusalem, and they brought all of the sick, all of the demon-possessed, and all of them were healed. May God move in such a way in our lives, in our churches, in our midst, yet again, as we cleanse ourselves, as we draw near to the Lord. And as we pointed out last time, with each fresh wave of revival, with each new visitation of the Holy Spirit, there came new persecution. And so in the final verses of Acts 5, the apostles again find themselves behind bars, in prison. And we're given even a little clearer insight now into the motivation for this persecution. In Acts 5, verses 17 and 18, 
I want to read again. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. You see, jealousy is often what's behind persecution. It's not so much that they hate Christians, or they even have anything against the doctrine. This is something closer to home. They're jealous because they're starting to lose their power. They're starting to lose their following. And if they don't do something about it, they're basically losing their position and their seat of authority. So, they were motivated by jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in jail, and an angel of the Lord comes along, opens the prison doors, tells them to go right back and keep preaching. And that's exactly what happened. When they were called in before the Sanhedrin, they were threatened and told to stop speaking this message. Now, I want to pick it up at the very end of the story. We have just a few verses remaining, but some very powerful things we want to look at as we close this part 4 and as we close out Acts chapter 5. Um, in Acts 5.33, it says, When the high priest and all of his associates heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them, the apostles, to death. What in the world did they say or do that made them so angry now that this is a new step now? They want to put them to death. Well, after giving them strict orders to stop teaching and preaching in Jesus' name, here's the response that Peter and the other apostles had given them. Backing up to verse 29 for just a moment. We must obey God rather than men. That would have gotten them hot right away, because that's challenging their authority. You see, Peter saying, there's someone higher than you. There's an authority higher than you guys. They didn't like that. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. We've seen this sermon several times now. You killed Him, God raised Him from the dead, and we are witnesses, eyewitnesses of that fact, that Jesus is risen from the dead. The one you put to death, God raised back to life. And they were furious. This word furious, I think we touched on this just at the end last time. The Greek word means to saw asunder, to exasperate, or to cut to the heart. And you may remember those words from Acts 2, this is a different Greek word, however. In Acts 2, when the people heard Peter's sermon, it says they were cut to the heart, and that prompted them to come to Peter and say, what must we do? And that's when Peter said, I'll tell you what to do. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a different word here. This is a different cutting to the heart. This kind of cutting, rather than producing humility, repentance, and asking 
what shall we do, this kind of a piercing, or literally sawing their heart in half, it only led them to say, we are going to kill these men. What are we going to do with these men? Now we want to put them to death. You can see this thing is escalating now. It's, it's accelerating. Their jealousy, their fury is reaching a new level now where they actually want to kill these apostles. Now, let's pick it up from verse 34 and read down to the end of the chapter a fascinating close to Acts chapter 5. From verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So, we find this man Gamaliel intervening. He puts the apostles out from their council meeting, and he gives them some advice. By the way, in Acts 22, verse 3, we will hear about this man Gamaliel again. He was the, he was the teacher of none other than Saul of Tarsus, the one who would become the Apostle Paul. So, certainly, he was a distinguished member of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of teachers, honored by all, and obviously, when he spoke, they all listened. Well, when he stood up in the Sanhedrin, he has the apostles leave. He's, he puts them outside for a while. I'm not sure how we get this first-hand account unless Luke somehow managed to remain inside listening to what took place because the apostles were all put out. In verse 33, his address begins... Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Well, he knew what they intended to do. They had just talked about putting them to death. 
And he cites for them a little bit of history. He says, some time ago, a man named Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. Now, let's pause and consider this for a minute. Great personalities can often rally quite a crowd. This guy obviously had some charisma. He maybe was a good orator, a passionate leader. We don't know too much about him. But somehow, he rallied quite a following. He had 400 men following him. However, when he was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and the entire movement came to nothing. Then he cites another bit of history, Judas, a different Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census, and he also rallied quite a crowd, led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, all his followers were scattered, and that movement came to nothing. Therefore, and here's the heart of Gamaliel's message, verse 38. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, as was Thutis and Judas, the two men he just cited, If it's of human origin, don't worry. It'll fizzle out, it'll fail, it'll come to nothing. But, if it is from God, if their purpose, if their activity is not of human origin, rather divine, if they're being directed by God, if they're in some way fulfilling a divine call, a divine purpose, and their activity is being charged, powered, motivated by God, be very, very careful. If it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel was not a Christian. There's no indication in Scripture that he was or ever became a Christian. We don't know that. His advice is not that of a Christian or even somebody who was pro-Christian. He was just giving some good common sense, worldly wisdom. Don't worry about the Thutises and the Judases. Their movements will die out with time, as do all human movements. But, maybe he sensed there was something different about this new movement, which they called the way. Maybe he was starting to sense there was something divine about this movement. If it is from God, you're not going to be able to stop them. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. You know, this advice should really encourage, should really excite us, knowing who we are, what the origin of our purpose, our activity, and our movement is. It is not of human origin. And God help us if it is. It'll come to naught. It'll come to nothing. And that's why the scriptures are very clear, unless the Lord builds the house... 
they that labor, labor in vain. Jesus clearly stated in Matthew chapter 16, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Who's building it? Christ is. Whose purpose and will and plan is it? It's Christ's. If the church is your idea or mine, it'll come to nothing. And if our ministry is of human origin, it'll come to nothing. It'll fizzle out. And if we think we've started some brand new cool movement, it'll come to nothing. Oh, we might gain quite a following for a time, like Thutis. He had 400 followers, but it fizzled out. And many movements come and go, but this movement, the true church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, this movement will not be stopped. No one will be able to stop it. And how right Gamaliel was, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. Now, um, this is not in your outline if you are following in the notes, but I want to read a well-known portion of scripture Scripture, sorry, from Romans chapter 8, from verse 28. Romans 8, 28, down through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, 28 begins with these words, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Or, some translations read a little differently. We know that all things work together for good. I like both of them. I think they, they are both included in the original thought of this scripture. All things, all things are working together for good because God is working in and through all those things but not for everyone. It's for a select group of people. It's for those who love God and those who have been called according to His purpose. Stop right there. Remember what Gamaliel said. If their purpose or activity is of human origin it will fail. If what you and I are trying to do is some clever human idea or plan or something we got out of a book that came from the plans and purposes of men, it'll fail. It'll come to nothing. But if, if we can get plugged into God's purpose, called according to His purpose, if we're moving and acting in accord with God's purpose, then that's altogether different. <clears throat> so Paul here in Romans 8 is stating in a slightly different way what Gamaliel was saying. All things are going to work together in harmony for good for those who love God and who have been called according to His purpose, who are walking in His purpose, whose purpose is to fulfill God's purpose. Continuing from Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into this, but Predestined is a very, very powerful word. And it's used in a number of places in the scripture. God foreknows, God plans, God purposes, and God predestines things. That's a 
powerful, powerful thought. And this only works when you're talking about a sovereign God, a God who rules over all things. Let's read this again. For those God foreknew, he's talking about you and me, those who have been called according to his purpose, he foreknew them, he also predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, that's a mouthful, and that's a whole lot of theology there. Books have been written on each one of these words, but we're just skimming over it. But if you can even begin to grasp the concept here that we're talking about an eternal, sovereign God who makes things happen, He calls things into being, He predestines, He plans, He foreknows, He makes things come to pass. That God has called us according to His eternal purpose. And if you and I love God and have been called according to His purpose, and you'll know, you'll know in your heart of hearts, because earlier in Romans 8 He says, the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are His child. You're one of those called ones, those he has justified. Then the rest of this applies, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who? The Sanhedrin? The high priest? The government? And you can fill in the blank. Who? can be against us? Well, it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is clearly, no one. That's what Gamaliel said. No one will be able to stop these men if their purpose is from God. Verse 32, Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. We heard a message on Sunday, yet the Lord longs to be gracious. This is the heart of our God. He is still longing to be gracious, to graciously, because of His Son Jesus Christ, give us all things. Verse 33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. Well, we know from Scripture the devil will try. He's the accuser of the brethren. Many voices will try to rise up and accuse us, condemn us. But if you have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been washed by the blood of Calvary, no one can bring any charge against you. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What a picture. You can have Satan and all of his demons with one united voice condemning and accusing us, and it comes to naught, because at the right hand of majesty on high is the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, who is standing between God and us, mediating for us, pleading our case as our defense lawyer. 
pleading our case before the Father. Father, forgive them. Remember my blood. Remember my sacrifice on Calvary. It was for all of their sins. No one can condemn them now, Father. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? He doesn't answer the question yet. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But he finally does answer in verse 37. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Gamaliel, I think, was sensing. Maybe not in the exact words, but coming back now to his speech in Acts 5.38, here's his advice. Leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And let me insert here a little bit of my own advice for myself and for all of the rest of us, especially those of us who are participating now in this time of fasting and prayer. Let this be a time for us to earnestly seek God. Lay down all of our purposes, all of our plans, all of our ambitions, all of our schemes, all of our activities. Let us lay them all down at the foot of the cross. And let us earnestly pray and wait and listen to the voice of God and the Word of God. Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your will for the church? And may we get plugged in to the purpose and plan and will of God. And here's the reason why. If our purposes and ambitions and plans have sprung from our own mind, our own human ambitions, it will ultimately fail. It will be in vain, it will bring forth no lasting fruit, and it will only bring frustration. But if, and if, this is a condition, if, our purposes, our activities are from God. No one can stop us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No persecution, no demon, nothing will be able to stop us from advancing in this great call. That's why we must spend much time making our calling and election sure. Find out what your ministry is. Find out what your calling is. Find out what your place in the body of Christ is. And when you take up that position, no demon can dislodge you. No demon can stop you from fulfilling the purpose and plan and destiny that God has placed upon your life. Now, back to Acts 5. After this great piece of advice from Gamaliel, it's almost humorous, they heard him, but then again, they didn't. They honored him, they listened carefully 
to what he had to say, but apparently they didn't hear him too well, because in verse 40, it says, His speech persuaded them. Well, stop right there. What did he tell them to do? He told them, leave these men alone. Let them go. Stop trying to fight against them. If this is from God, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. So what do they do? They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Brilliant. They were just told, leave them alone. Stop fighting against them. Just let them go. What do they do? They have to beat them. They give them a good and proper whipping. And then, before releasing them, they order them one more time. Don't speak. This time they don't just say in the name. They spell it out. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. <laughs> so they just had to whip them, and they had to give them one final warning before releasing them. Well, apparently they heard what they wanted to hear, and they still did what they wanted to do. They took some pleasure in having them whipped and giving them one final threat, one final warning before they let them go. I wonder if Gamaliel was already beginning to sense from seeing what was happening with the apostles and with the high priests and all of the religious leaders, maybe he was already beginning to sense we are fighting against God. Every time we try to stop these guys, an angel shows up, releases them from prison. The more we threaten them to stop speaking, the more bold they become, and the more they preach, and the more the movement advances. The more we try to shut it down, the more it keeps growing. In any event, Gamaliel's advice, his wisdom, was very, very clear. If this movement is from God, you will not be able to stop it. You'll not be able to stop these men, and you will find yourselves getting more and more frustrated because you will actually be fighting against God. Fast forward to Acts 9, when we come to Saul of Tarsus, the great leader of the persecution against the way, against the Christians, he would actually be confronted face to face with Jesus Christ, who would ask him this question, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? against the pricks. In other words, Paul, you're fighting against me. It's not the church you're persecuting. It's me you're fighting against. It's me you're trying to stop. And you cannot stop me. So, after having the apostles flogged and ordering them to stop preaching, teaching in the name of Jesus, they're finally released. Um, in the message translation, uh, where it says, leave these men alone, uh, it says, so I am telling you, hands off these men. Let them go. Well, they couldn't quite keep their hands off them yet, and so they gave them one final whipping before releasing these apostles, but only to find out their threats, their warnings were in vain again, because 
not only were they not able to scare the apostles or to stop them from preaching, they went right out and kept teaching and preaching day after day after day. Because in verses 41 and 42, we read, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That must have really irked the Jewish leaders. Here are the apostles, even as they're leaving the Sanhedrin, they're singing and shouting and praising God and saying, Hallelujah! We've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Hallelujah! How blessed we are to have been beaten in the name of Jesus. Day after day, in the very temple courts where they had been forbidden to come, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. You know, as we bring this to a close, may we be encouraged tonight, understanding that we have received a great commission from Almighty God to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, to proclaim the name of Jesus, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. No decree, no edict from any governor or government should stop us. No one should be able to threaten us or muzzle our mouths. How many thousands of Christians died last year, died as martyrs, thousands Thousands and thousands of Christians died as martyrs in the world in 2016 because they realized they cannot be stopped. Even if it meant death, they were not going to stop proclaiming the name and the good news of Jesus Christ. May God give us that same boldness. May God help us to understand We must obey God and not men. May we have the same testimony these apostles had. They had filled all of Jerusalem with their doctrine. May we fill all of Washington, Maryland, the United States, and wherever God sends us with the doctrine, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In summary, as we finish out part four, we've looked at Acts 3, 4, and 5. We've been able to trace great growth that took place in the Jerusalem church. We're still confined to Jewish believers a Jewish church in Jerusalem for the first 10 to 15 years of church history. The church there in Jerusalem is exploding in numbers. Great signs and wonders and miracles are taking place at the hands of the apostles who are boldly standing even in the face of threats, imprisonment, and persecution, and even now, threats of death. That will not sway them, that will not silence them. They're continuing to boldly teach and preach the name and the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, whenever God moves, whenever there are miracles, signs, and wonders, the powers of darkness get stirred up. Opposition comes from outside, through civil or religious authorities, especially those who are moved with jealousy. And that can even happen inside the church when certain established 
leadership in the church becomes old and stale, becomes set in its ways, and is challenged by a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, jealousy often prompts them to try to squash the moving of the Holy Spirit and even persecute those that are a part of that movement. But make no mistake, the movement of the Holy Spirit will continue. No man will ever be able to snuff it out or stop it because they will only be fighting against God. They also had troubles from within. Hypocrisy, Satan trying to stir up trouble with people like Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit, God dealt with that as well. And as God continued to cleanse the church, sanctify the people, He continued to move in great power with signs and wonders and miracles. As the church grew, more and more believers were being added, and remember, these were Jews, Jewish believers, were being added daily to the church. It's now exploding in numbers, and we will learn in the next chapter that even many priests would begin to join the way. They would begin to convert to Christianity. In part 5, next time, We'll begin looking in Acts chapter 6 and 7, still in the Jerusalem church, and we will see, as the church grew, they experienced growing pains. And they had some other situations that would arise. They had to call on the Lord for wisdom. God gave the apostles wisdom and guidance how to navigate those new waters that they found themselves on, and God continued to bring great growth in the church, and they would actually have their first martyr. Yes, the first leader who would actually be put to death will come to in Acts chapter 7, namely that of the deacon Stephen. But more about that next time as we embark in part As we bring part four to a close, let's join our hearts together in prayer as we turn to the Lord. Father God, I thank you for your word. Your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word teaches us, it instructs us, it equips us, it counsels us, it even corrects and yes, sometimes rebukes us. And Father, I pray that you would raise up a people in these last days who tremble at your word, who take your word very seriously, a people who are moved with conviction in their hearts by the teaching, the preaching, and the reading of your word. Lord, as we are going through this 21 days of fasting and prayer, I pray that you would draw us near to yourself. You would put within us a great hunger, a great longing to know you, to hear your voice, to feast on your word, O God. For man will not live on bread alone, on natural food, but on the word that comes from the very mouth of God. Speak to us. Teach us, guide us, inspire us, move in our hearts and lives. God, I pray for a reviving of this spirit that we read in the apostles in the early church. A boldness. They could not be stopped. They could not be silenced. They knew that what they were doing was not of human origin. They knew that they had been called from heaven, and what they were doing was of divine inspiration. They were doing the very will of God. They were plugged in to the eternal purpose and destiny that had come to rest upon their lives. Lord, call us. 
Call us away from our plans, our ambitions, our ways. Call us into your will, into your purpose, into your destiny. And Lord, help us to understand, as Paul did in writing to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we're on your side, and when we're on your side, you're on our side, fighting all of our battles at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, pleading our case, mediating for us. And yes, because your precious blood has already been shed for all of our sins, we stand before the very throne as the righteousness of God, cleansed, pure, and holy. God, I give you thanks, praise, honor, and glory for each and every one with us tonight, those that might be listening to this Bible study in a future time. Let it inspire each and every one of our hearts. Stir us up to greatness. Stir us up to seeking you in a fresh and a new way. Rekindle the flames, the fire of first love in each and every one of our lives and continue to pour out grace upon our lives to fast, to pray, to seek your face, to repent, to draw near to you in this season. And we will give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor forever and ever in Jesus' holy name. Amen and Amen.